I hope you enjoyed part one of our two-part special celebrating one year of the Inspiring Schools podcast. Today I welcome Dr. Alex Curtis, Head of School at Choate Rosemary Hall in the USA. In this episode, I discuss idealism and activism with a head of school that helped inspire John F. Kennedy's most famous speech, the challenges around diversity and inclusion, sustainability in schools, and keeping a traditional school future facing. Alex, hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. I'm looking forward to having a chat with you because actually, just reading through your bio, we actually got quite a lot of things in common. We were both born in London. You were raised kind of home counties. I'm probably about 15 minutes from Windsor. And I was educated in London. So here in our probably similarities finish. And then you obviously went off and you're in, you're in America. And I'm still here. I'm still kind of halfway between London and in Oxford in a place called High Wycombe. Oh, you're in High Wycombe? Yeah, yeah, I remember High Wycombe. I actually don't know much about High Wycombe except for the bus I used to take terminated in High Wycombe. So I'd wait for the green number, whatever, High Wycombe bus. So I have a soft spot for High Wycombe because it meant I could get home. <laughs> and was that home to Windsor? That was when I was in Windsor. Yeah, it must have been a bus from like Egham to Windsor to High Wycombe. Is that possible? Yeah, yeah, it is. And we're actually about to move now actually to Maidenhead. So, but close to Bray. That's going to be home in a few weeks, hopefully. My parents grew up in North London. I was born in Hendon. You can imagine in 1968, they moved to Windsor. People thought they'd gone to the end of the world. And it just people like, no one will ever visit you. And then people would come down and see it was like, you know, the river and pretty. And But I ended up going to St. Paul's. So I, um, I used to commute. I did a year and a half of getting on the train in Egham, Richmond, Tube, Hammersmith, Walk in the 1980s in British Rail. It was not, not a good experience. So that, that's when I became a boarder at St. Paul's and then ended up in the US at college. But boarding school kind of, that was what led me to boarding school really was not wanting to commute on British rail trains anymore. I'm going to kick off, George, with some quickfire questions. Favourite colour and why? Blue or gold, because those are choke colours. But is that your real favourite colour? Is that, is that your colour of now? It's my colour of now. But interestingly, it really is because I'm a Leeds United fan since the age of two. And so all white strip, right? But blue and yellow are the colors that go with it. So it's actually more Leeds than Choke. So Leeds, let me understand this. So kind of Windsor to Hendon to London. Why Leeds? It must be family. I know it was age two. They won the league in 1967-68. My brother piled 22 books up to explain how the first division worked as it was. And he said Leeds were on the top. And that's all I remember because I was two years old. Little did I know that... It was nowhere near home. I should have been, you know, Chelsea, right? I mean, Division One, QPR in those days were in Division One, or Brentford was the closest, closest. But that's all I knew. So lead. So I sort of was just floating out there. But I remember the '72 FA Cup, the '73 FA Cup when we lost to Sunderland, '74. So it was it was sort of the the glory team of that time, right? It was following the winners. But my defence is, I've been ever since through the ups and the downs and, and everything, and, and even now the ups and downs of, of this year. So it, you know, like an English football team does, it gets in you. And I used to go on the terraces and never went to Ellen Road to seem too far, which is bizarre. We're two and a half hours from New York and I go down there for the day all the time. But, but I used to go um, stand on the terraces at Highbury and White Hart Lane in the Leeds End and um, Stamford Bridge maybe once. It was more those two uh with the big ones i never went to west ham that seemed a bit worrying um that that upton park and qpr and, and i didn't play at qpr so 
So that's how you kept your supporting going, was just to see them playing away games around London. The interesting thing, I was told to people the difference in my lifetime of supporting, being in America, supporting an English football team. When I was in college first, so 1985, the library knew being English, you know, we weren't that many kids at Swarthmore. They used to call me the day the newspapers were delivered every six weeks from England. We get this pile about this high and I pile them up and I read through the season, you know, like binging. It was binge watching and those things. I've gone from that, finding out every six weeks how they did through internet gaming. And now to the point where, I mean, even when we were in the Premier League, Leeds would have their commentary, like listen live on the internet. I actually met Eddie Gray recently, who did the Leeds commentary. I was, I was in Leeds and I met him. And I told him that um, for 10 years when we were in the League One, the championship, and he did the commentary, he was my biggest connection to England and his voice, my kids listening it to me, we were really gathered around the computer, very sort of old school 1930s listening to this voice out of the radio. And I said, and you were it, you embodied Leeds for me in that time. And he was, and I said, you know, what you did as a player and a manager, but actually for me, it was that connection. So, and now it's a point where I'm getting the news in real time, same as in England, watching the games on, on NBC. Every American speaker always has a Premier League team that they support. They watch it religiously. I think more so than we do here. Yeah, no, everyone's got an opinion. And it's interesting because no one had ever heard of Leeds until they got promoted. And now everyone's like, oh, Leeds, yeah, Bielsa. They play such, you know, such wonderful sport. And um, so given Leeds' reputation, you know, dirty Leeds and all that stuff, it is ironic. Leeds are seen as this expansive, exciting team to watch, beauty of the game. And I'm like, oh, we're the team that had George Graham. You know, we're the team that like bought the socks off people for periods of time or fouled them off the field. So it's nice to be a hero for once. Favourite movie? That is the one with Tom Cruise. The military one with... Um, a Few Good Men. A Few Good Men. Demi Moore and Jack Nicholson. Because the question I actually ask this to my students, which is, who's the hero? Is it Jack Nicholson or Tom Cruise? Because the movie's written for Tom Cruise, obviously, in that great moment, you can't handle the truth and all that stuff. But Jack Nicholson's speech when he says, I'm on the fence so you can sleep at night. We in the movie deny that. You can't do anything to be on the fence. But the truth is, in America today, and especially it was very relevant during the war on terror, I suppose the war on terror is still going on, but particularly... So the Abu Ghraib time was like, that's happening all the time. And we accept it all the time. And, and all these cameras and everything is actually Jack Nicholson. And Tom Cruise is sort of lost in the current era. Brilliantly made movie and real questions. And the soldiers at the end, when they realize they've won, but they've lost and their honor. It's about a lot of things that I think says that. And then Shawshank Redemption. I just love. Shawshank, I mean, it's why it's still number one in IMDb. It's still why it is the number one rated movie of all time. You can't avoid that one being on a list. Yeah, it's just extraordinary. And there's just so many parts that movie are great. So yeah, those types of things. Favourite book? It's actually interesting because I'm supposed to be more intellectual than that. This is to get to know the real you. This is not... Okay, it's another fake one. Um, I love historical fiction. So for me, I, Claudius was the first book that I read. I was reading it when John Paul I died because I remember I had the book and we were on vacation. So that was 79, I think. So it's like 12 or 13. You know, I'm a historian. I love that part of it. I was a classicist. So I Claudius and Claudius the God, uh, even before I saw the TV shows, I think the books are better, were kind of life-changing books for me of really confirming to me that I wanted to know more about not just history as dates and how we were taught it as sort of, even just as great men with dates and battles and victories, but actually 
the people behind it and you know Livia and the women behind it and the the Breed Friedman and just the the whole mix of it. And I, th- I think that book is what you know turned me on. And then you know as an art historian later, things like Agony and Ecstasy, you know, kind of Michelangelo and that. But and then Colin McCullough, Colleen McCullough, who wrote Thornbirds, wrote a brilliant. Um, series of Roman Republic stories from Marius all the way through to Augustus. That's just spectacular. So, um, and do you connect with any other modern kind of historical fictions? There's always a lot of hidden figures, and I think that it seems to be quite popular now. Where there are these hidden figures from history, from maybe more recent history that we can kind of imagine. You know, like World War Two, and I know there was one beneath the scarlet sky which is turning into a movie, which was this Italian who was a chauffeur for Mussolini and he had to escape and go across the... It was just phenomenal. You know, some of it has some artistic liberty, but a large chunk of it was absolutely true and it just blows your mind because you never hear that side of the story. There's a brilliant podcast. I think they're turning into a movie, um, Operation Mincemeat, I think they call it, where they drop that guy in as a dead officer into Spain and it had the plans for the invasion of Greece, not Sicily, to get Hitler to move. And just what went into creating that to happen is spectacular. It's sort of the creativity, Churchill's willingness to let someone do something out of the box, psychological warfare to Hitler and his leadership of what they would jump onto. And then the vagaries of history that, you know, there were so many ways it could have gone wrong. So yeah, I think finding the people, I have two opposite things that occur, right? Which is one, I'm struck and stunned by the impact of one person. I'm stunned by that in a school. It's just me. I'm just, you know, I think of myself as Alex, not this head of school, not this titular thing. I know myself as human being. It is extraordinary how flavors of school are impacted by an individual. And we've seen that with the American presidency and frankly, English primary. One person changes the whole bit. And that just seems overwhelming to me. So I've got that on one hand, and then the opposite, and life is about these dynamic balances and these things, of actually, it's the people that make things happen. It's everyday life. It's the people, as they say, in the trenches or, the, or making it happen, and the vagaries of that. And that actually, I love all the Bob Woodward stuff recently. I've, I've read his whole series. I started with the, the Trump books, but I went back. I've read all the President's Men back in the day, but I read the book about Deep Throat and his reminiscence of that, the Feld story, and just one person's choice of, you know, Watergate doesn't happen, the go, go beyond it is, without one person at the FBI, you know, number two at the FBI deciding that there is just basic lack of decency and this is not okay. There's dirty games in politics and we have to do, but recognizing maybe his moral code wasn't all the way where it needed to be, but the, it had crossed some line. Nixon gets to do whatever the heck he wants. And in fact, could have carried on, except for someone stepping up and doing the right thing in the right moment. And that combination of kind of the great person theory versus individual actions, the butterfly starting a hurricane, is the great wrestling moment of a historian's sort of mind, I think. And another connection, actually, with Sally Ann is that we're both involved in a historical film. This was a, a story brought to us by a couple of actors. They needed some investment. They needed some support to get the story out there. And it's called In Soldier's Clothes. And it was a film inspired by the true story of Dorothy Lawrence, who basically disguised herself as a man to go to the front line. And it's, uh, it's an incredible story, but that one of, you know, that ends in tragedy when you kind of see it, but it's been buried. And these stories never get told. I think we can talk about, you know, all the historical fiction for a long time. I want to find out what's your favourite type of cuisine. It's an interesting for a person that has to travel and represent the school as much as I, I can. That I'm actually... A horribly fussy Eastern, do not have a big palate. Is it because I went through 
English schools in the 1970s and 80s? Maybe. My director of sustainability here read an article about super tasters, that there's a group of people that have particularly strong tastes. And so spices and things, they taste it more than anybody else. That is my excuse. I believe I'm a super taster and can't handle wildly spicy things. So I love wonderfully French and Italian as well. But in a world where people are supposed to say something more exciting. I think actually Italian is the number one response that we do have. What about a go-to dish? If you had to have one dish, what would your dish be? The local restaurant here makes a chicken masala that is, it doesn't matter what time of day, what it is, just makes you happy. And I do like a shepherd's pie the way I make it. It's really a cottage pie that I make that's uh, go-to. So the, the combination of all the bad things, cheese, potato and meat, like it <laughs> doesn't get much more simple, but if you want comfort, that'll do it. If you weren't in education, what job would you do and what sector would you be in? My CFO, my previous job sort of said to me, he came into me one day and said, like, if you'd have gone into finance, do you realize how much money you would have made and how much money you've left on the table? It was sort of intriguing in that moment. I, and I said to him, I don't think that's true because I don't think I could have done something that wasn't more um, tangible. I mean, they're, they're doing things and they're making things. And certainly many of my board members argue, and rightly so, that without their investment and supporting projects like the movie you're talking about, things don't get made and get done. So I'm not putting those aside, but I'm much more, not that I'm particularly good with my hands, but seeing a specific project and, and something happening. To be honest, if I had, it, if life had been different, coaching would have been the world I would have been in. Actually, my, I had a moment in my life, 2001, when I had to make the choice. I don't know if it's in my bio, but when I was in grad school, I was the coach of the Princeton women's rugby team. We won two national championships. Uh, we traveled the world. We played against, beat Oxford twice, took them over to England twice. We went to seven final fours here. It really was this kind of moment of, and I've, I found that team experience, pulling for the same thing, the camaraderie of it, of the constant innovation. You always need to stay one step ahead. The willingness to try, and I was very lucky I had this combination of incredibly thoughtful, intelligent women with the physical skills to put into action. We were able to try lots of things out. And um, the problem was there just wasn't, my children were born in 1998 and 2000. I was offered a senior administrative position in 2001. I did the responsible thing and I, I certainly haven't regretted that, but sort of a dream in retirement that I'll go back to coaching. Cause I, I think if I, if I'd been born in a different place and time and could have been, I mean, I know the stress is difficult things, but you look at these football coaches or American or English. And I think like just being part of that whole setup and that work together is pretty extraordinary. We actually, again, very similar in that regard. It's where I wanted to go down. I just wanted to go and I'm a sports person. Give me any racket, bat, ball. It doesn't matter. I will play and I've played at the highest level. Played against, beat Oxford too. But it is, it's, it's that sense. I always thought I'd go and do that. And actually, I would rather go back, I think, when I break from this as a job and it will be more grassroots. Just to go back and just to teach those kids how to enjoy sport. And there's a lot of elitism and actually you still need to push kids. And I think there's, there's, there's quite a cotton wool society now. They need to push themselves. I don't think there's enough of that. And I think actually encouraging kids and there's not enough people coaching. I'd love to do that too. So sport's always been number one for me. The best highs and the deepest lows in, in many ways. When we think about educating students and trying to work out how to teach resilience, the cotton wool part you said, I mean, it, it is, there's all sorts of good reasons. And I don't want to be like, oh, the younger generation don't get it. They, they face challenges that we just never faced in my time. And I think the media see social media constantly being on the watch. It's hard to find quiet times. I totally get why those things are a challenge now. 
So, but part of our job as educators is to help them find those things. And I feel like one of the things that sports does bring you is the, you can give everything and it not work out and still be worthwhile. I love our drama program for much of the same reason of doing something bigger than yourself, being part of something. Even the star at the front of the stage needs the rest of the group and needs to be part of something. I watched that. I've been very fortunate. I've got a very theater department that's been very indulgent to their head of school that they invited me. I did not ask to get little walk-on parts in many of our plays. I think they're very, very smart because I've been able to see the space and I know the challenges they've had, which means I can certainly help them support the program. But I often go like for the week before and go to the dress rehearsals. I don't want to just show, I want to sort of show the support to it. In watching what that does, and I think same thing happens in, in athletics, and I, I'm sure there's, I can name plenty of other clubs and activities at our school, but those, those in particular, you can see the way that our students support each other in that. The person's going to go out the lead, and, and what actually makes that performance great are the three people before, running over their lines with them, helping them change, setting up their props to be in the right place, sitting down. I watch, I watch a student sitting down with a student and going, you've got this. You can do it. I've seen you perform it. They're going to love you. And like, no one out there is going to see that part of the performance, but without it, it doesn't happen. And then the, you know, the star coming out and thanking all the people, knowing that the amount of work that it took for the ensemble, and actually there is no show. They actually, the ensemble, maybe the stars of the show, maybe someone's out front. Those things for me, those are the life-changing and just inspiring. And why I do this is, is watching that. And I am jealous when I go to a game and I watch the huddle and I watch the coach in the middle. I really miss that moment when you're right before the game and you look in everyone's eye and you know you've worked your hardest. You've got this effort you're going to do together. You're going to take on a challenge. And that's a very special. That's also, you know, blatantly obvious with, with the rest of life is that it's always the end result we focus on. You talk about life and I always think that, that life is this dance that should never end. You know, people that planning for a time, planning for an end game, planning for an end result is always, if you figure too much to the end, you actually forget to enjoy the moment. You forget about all the amazing things and the people that come together to create them. Events, you, you know, take for granted as turning on the TV. You know, now we've got like, you know, a million channels, a million programs. You just think about your one production that you do at your school compared to also what goes out, all the people that contribute to those things. We do take everything for granted. And that's something, obviously, as educators, you, you make sure that you get everybody involved to ensure that they are a, a small piece, however small, but it's that synergistic feel to it all. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. We haven't really got into all the main questions yet, but I'm, I'm really dying to get going because we've talked about drama. We've talked about, you know, you talk about presidents and Watergate and other things, but both of those things link quite well to Rosemary Hall's alumni roster, which includes Nobel Prize winners, Oscar winning actors, Olympic medalists and one American president. John F. Kennedy, choke class of 1935, delivered one of the most famous quotes in American history. And it seems to have been inspired by your predecessor, the legendary George St. John. He was known to say, the youth who loves his alma mater will always not, what can she do for me, but what can I do for her? President Kennedy delivered a strikingly similar line in 1961 inaugural address, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. His call to action inspired young people to see the importance of public service in the 1960s. Democracy, which relies on respecting and competing values, seems to be under assault in America. Is Kennedy's idealistic call to the greater good still relevant? 
I'm inspired by him. And we've got a picture of him just down the hallway. There's a great portrait of him. And the building that I'm in actually originally was the school's hospital. So he was not well for much of his time actually at Choate. So he was, he was literally in this space. And so we have a place where we have some material from him. He is important in that call for something bigger than yourself. He actually did an address to our alumni group. In, he was given our alumni award in 61, 62. And he actually talked way back then of these schools needing to be more than they were at the time, that they couldn't just be catering to an elite and just worrying about whether those people were successful, but they actually needed greater purpose. And they needed to worry about their role in the whole country, actually the whole world, and what they were giving back. And to a certain extent, he meant for those individuals, their responsibility with great privilege, what they needed to give back. But I actually generally think he was making that call that really didn't hit these schools until the end of the 60s and into the 70s of opening themselves up and being more welcoming environments, that we are still living that, that dream. And we're way further along that process, but, but we're living that. So I think it isn't just a question to me of the danger to democracy, but simply functioning society. It only works when we can get people caring about each other. I think when you are your neighbor doesn't matter to you. You don't respect them. You don't understand their values. It's pretty clear to me that when we understand each other and work together, you know, going back to that coaching question, we're better when we're together. There are two things for me that keep me making those things important. One, I'm an historian. And two, I'm an optimist because I'm in schools. You have to be an optimist because you're around young people in the future and the amazing things. So I take that step back and look at the grand course of history. And I say, I get it that right now we're not in our highest point moment. But if you look in the grand course, I actually think we are doing those things. We worry about those less fortunate. We worry about parts of society more than we did in the Roman times or in the 17th century or in the 19th century or even in 1950 or 1960. So the line improves. Like they always do, there's ups and downs. I would argue we're in a little bit of that down moment. But as I think about the grand sweep of history and you take a step back, I can put aside the short-term scariness and know my role to make that better with our students. But I see, I think we're next to be moving towards a more positive future because that's the course of history. I really believe that. Do you think that schools have a greater role to play in building the next generation of leaders, you know, particularly when the political sides seem to drift further apart and they're quite polarised, particularly in America? Yeah, no, absolutely. We have a strategic plan we've just put in and there's a couple of places I'm sure will be relevant to our conversation today. You know, we've got a line in it where we're specifically addressing that because it's been so much on our minds as, as we watch. So we just literally adopted this in the, this academic year. So one, one of the lines is promote inquiring and respectful discourse made richer by the different experiences around us. It's exactly that, that we know there's a range of experiences. We know we can learn from those ranges of experiences. You don't just pontificate and say your piece. It's discourse. It's discourse that brings valuing what someone else will say and having that Test that against your assumptions and your beliefs. Maybe adjust, maybe not, but at least be taking the time to listen and, and make that happen. And I think that we have a huge responsibility, particularly in adolescent years, because these are extraordinarily important formative years. The habits are learned that, you know, when I think back to my life, so many of those things, why does school seem like it was so many more years than the years I've been ahead of school? Because all those experiences came together and, and set so many things. I believe I've changed since the 18-year-old version of me, but so much was set by then or come to play a role. So this is the time when we have this huge influence where we can change that narrative. I'll end by the little bit of, I think, boarding schools 
are an extraordinarily important example of that because we are a laboratory in some ways. We're a test case for bringing people together, physically together, all over the world, from all over the world, from all over the country, from all types of backgrounds, and saying, we're going to do this grand experiment of us, adults, students, about 1,200 of us living together. It's not 20 people. All of us living together, can we do this? And it's not always easy. But with respect and core values that we live by and and, and some ways that we guide ourselves, we can prove that it works. And we have a huge responsibility to make that happen and then show and, and work out how that can grow beyond us. You talk about responsibility and, you know, it's surely the responsibility of all schools to set out the guidelines for how students should engage with a lot of this social activism that's happening. What are your thoughts on that? I do think so. I think it's been exciting the last few years as our students have got so aware of the world outside them. As someone that came through schools in the 80s with our generation, in many ways, to our detriment, rejected sort of the idealism of the 60s and what was left in the 70s. And, you know, we think of the 80s as a material time. I'm not sure our students have got back to sort of that larger understanding of themselves that, that existed as these schools, all schools, the whole society changed in the 60s. This is the time I think is closest to that. And our students, whether it's through social media, whether it's through awareness, whether it's through the education they've had, the different experiences, bringing people from such a range of backgrounds. And there are immediate things right in front of them. There are injustices that they see, and they're not going to turn the other cheek. And I absolutely applaud them for that. So whether that's in issues around race in particular in America, they're absolutely standing up for doing the right thing and breaking down the ways that we have um, systems societally that cause you know, racist systems in society. They've stood up for that. And I also think that they recognize their generation are going to feel the impact of the climate change issues that have happened. The generations have been able to say, 2030, 2040, 2050, not my problem. Very selfish and unacceptable ways. This generation knows they're going to be dealing with it and their children, and they're not going to sit back and let others do it for them because they haven't done it very well. And I respect that. Yeah, the voices of the young has absolutely been heard around the world. And I'm like you, I'm, I'm in awe actually of of how, you know, you talked about the individuals making a massive difference. I think they're all benefiting from the power and reach and amplification of social media, that they can all join to a common cause, to a voice, to get heard. And they are changing democracies, they're changing politics. Um, Have America's sort of intense debates about social justice and racial inequality played out on Choate's campus? 2020, 2021, all the way through, I think it gave an opportunity for voices to be heard, as you said before, that were not. And that was our fault. And I think we've, we had been, I'm not quite sure we were quite as far as patting ourselves on the back, but we weren't that far away because we had done so much since, you know, choose a period before, you know, the school is much more welcoming, had changed the curriculum, had, you know, put in support for our students who are a Dean of Equity Inclusion. And I think we were doing it at a very comfortable pace and assuming that everyone felt good about it. And I think that what really was an incredibly important wake-up call, particularly after the murder of George Floyd and that message we heard, but, you know, we, we had a, a black at Choate, you know, the old schools had the black at accounts. You know, the message we heard was things you thought were going okay were not going as well as you thought they were. And things where you were pretty comfortable with the pace were not fast enough. And you need to wake up and you need to do a better job. And I think that was a really important 
statement and realization, we put together a task force on campus. It was like, we can't wait around for this and go through it at the usual pace that school does. So we put together a task force and we asked them to look at kind of all aspects of the school. How could we make sure students felt welcome, that they felt safe on campus? Where would they see themselves reflected with, with the short-term, medium-term, long-term? What are the policies? How could we change the curriculum to be more reflective of the school today to educate our students for the world they were going to? What training did we need? What commitments did we need to make as adults in the community to not just expect the students to learn, but learn even faster ourselves? So I think it was our students said to us, you need to do better. And we're learning. And I'm not sure we're all the way there yet. It would be as presumptuous as 2019 to pat ourselves on the back. I think our students are continuing to push and continue to lead. We have a spectacular uh, Rachel Myers, Dr. Rachel Myers is our Dean of Equity and Inclusion. She is very much including our students. It's not led by the adults or students, her partnership. She's making sure this is authentic work at church. So she's absolutely basing it on core values of the school, respect, integrity, compassion, and saying like, if you actually follow what the school stands for, if we really did respect everyone, if we really were full of integrity, if we were compassionate to the situations everyone faced, we wouldn't face. You can't have systemic racism if you believe in those, those core values. And so we're working very hard. We've got a long way to go. And I think admitting that as much progress has been made, there's so much more to be done. There's loads to be done. I don't, I don't think there's an end point. It's, it's one of these things. It will carry on going on and on and on. You know, and schools that set an end point that they feel they've, they've achieved some results actually don't really get it. And I think that you've got to keep that conversation going. Getting your students to lead from the centre is massively important because they're the ones that are going to make the difference and change it. Having that dialogue, having good leadership, but it being underpinned by your moral compass and your values, that authenticity that comes through. That's what humans, you know, I don't know any human on the planet that likes to be disliked. And it just makes no sense. Humans thrive on positivity. It's what makes us human. So, you know, just getting back to that, where there's no kind of probably statuses or barriers or boundaries or someone better than the other, I think it's really important. If you enjoyed part one, don't forget to tune in to part two next week on the Inspiring Schools podcast anniversary special. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.